So many people never see themselves represented in the classroom. PhD programs offer little, if any, pedagogy training, let alone having to do with intersectionality or decoloniality. We live in a time where old classroom conventions and ways of thought are proving to be radically insufficient. New approaches are desperately needed. Hello, this is Justin. And this is Ashley. Welcome to Pedagogies for Peace, intersectional and decolonial teaching podcast. An audio series that foregrounds critical pedagogies with a focus on intersectionality and decoloniality. We come from varied backgrounds. From political science, feminist international relations, native studies, critical media studies, American studies, and ethnic studies. From philosophy, peace studies, gender studies, and political theory. To bring you insights from thought leaders and offer glimpses of what could be. From transformations inside the classroom to rethinking what is possible. Hello. Today we are speaking to Dr. Cheryl Lightfoot. Cheryl is Canada Research Chair in Global Indigenous Rights and Politics at the University of British Columbia. She holds a PhD in political science from the University of Minnesota. And in addition to many of her publications, she's published a book called Global Indigenous Politics, A Subtle Revolution. Her work highlights the importance of being attentive to Indigenous knowledges and lived experiences in the global arena. Aside from her scholarship, I know Cheryl is well known for her outstanding mentorship and the contributions to the field of international relations and global politics, actually being the first Native woman to receive a PhD in international relations in the United States. Thank you for being with us today. If you could, please let us know how you've been doing. And also, if you'd like to introduce yourself in any additional way to our listeners. Thanks, Justin. My name is Cheryl Lightfoot, and I'm Anishinaabe from the Lake Superior Band of Ojibwe, originally from the Michigan side of the lake. My people, however, live all the way around the lake, and our nation is centered on Lake Superior. I grew up in the city of Minneapolis primarily, and I became an academic mid-career, so I after a 15-year career in urban spaces and working for community organizations within Minneapolis and St. Paul, I went back for a PhD and took up work um, in academia, focused on indigenous advocacy and looking more on the international level. So I've had an academic position at the University of British Columbia since 2009 in political science and indigenous studies. And I became Canada Research Chair of Global Indigenous Rights and Politics in 2013. So I'm on my second term of Canada Research Chair. And then most recently, I was asked to devote part of my time to the role of senior advisor to the UBC president on Indigenous Affairs. And in this job, I have been asked to develop a new Indigenous strategic plan for the university. And that Indigenous plan is looking at how can the university play a role in implementing the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples in the post-secondary context. And then, most recently, I've been borrowed 
from uh, Indigenous Studies by the School of Public Policy and Global Affairs at UBC, which is a brand new public policy school with a global focus. And they are interested in building up some Indigenous programming and pedagogy in the school. So taking a, a new approach to public policy that's beyond kind of the conservative perspectives that we think of in a policy school. So they borrowed me for three years to help build up some curriculum there and hopefully recruit some faculty. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about why you think critical approaches to teaching and pedagogy are important. And if you could tell us a bit about an experience or a text that has helped shape your thoughts and your perspective on these questions. Hmm. Yeah, I think as an undergraduate and during my master's degree, and my master's was in public policy and it was several decades ago. As an Indigenous student, I felt very alienated by the classroom and by instruction. And I didn't see myself in, in the materials. I didn't feel necessarily included in the conversations. It felt like I was studying someone else's world. And, and I think at that point in my life, I was comfortable too comfortable really with the compartmentalization that there was the academic world on the one hand that was quite foreign to me, but I had to work through this. I had to do this in order to get the education that I was going to need to bring back to the community. And then there was my native world. And that seemed quite separate from the institutions I was in. And I guess 20 year old me and 22 year old me didn't really question that. I just did what a lot of people did at that point in history, which was just accept it, that you walked in both worlds and you had to navigate and move back and forth between each one. And I'm happy to say the world has shifted dramatically. And so by the time I went back for PhD, which was again 15 years later, after doing a substantial amount of on-the-ground grassroots community work with organizations in the urban area, I realized going back that academia was beginning to change and it it was changing in a way that was opening some doors and it was emergent I would say and and I got my PhD at University of Minnesota which was I think at the time for political science departments one of the most cutting edge looking at at critical perspectives and critical pedagogies and I can honestly say I don't think I would have survived a political science PhD program anywhere else (laughs) because I learned different ways of doing academic work and I no longer felt like I had to keep them so separate and I think it took a year of PhD for me to accept that there was actually an open space where I could bring my indigenous world and my knowledge of indigenous peoples and organizing and politics into academic work. And I could, for the first time in my life, I felt them coming together. And I wouldn't say that there was a particular text that did that. There were humans that did that. (laughs) And it was the human beings that were open to learning and integrating and even, and it was actually my PhD supervisor, he was a very senior academic and really only knew bits and pieces about the indigenous world, but he was open to it and approached it without judgment and without negativity and also without 
a liberal missionary sense. He approached it in a very, so he wasn't coming to rescue indigenous peoples from ourselves. He was open to hearing what our knowledges were and what our contributions were on their face. And for me, in the academic world, that was brand new. I had never seen a non-indigenous person do that. And so that was a key turning point in my life. And it fundamentally changed my willingness to be in academia because I didn't go into the PhD at mid-career thinking I was going to be a tenure-track research professor at a top university. That was not the plan. (laughs) The plan was simply to gain the PhD to enhance some of the research projects that I was doing already in community, and maybe I would teach a course or two here and there at one of the local universities. Becoming a tenure-track research professor was nowhere in <laughs> my plans. It was, wasn't even a dream. It's one of those things that happens to you while you're making other plans. <laughs> and, <laughs> and again, it was just a stroke of luck that the University of British Columbia at the time was looking for someone who could bring on-the-ground Indigenous community-based knowledges to academia. And so it was First Nations and Indigenous Studies program at that time that was seeking someone like me and managed to convince me that this might be an okay move for me to make would be to become a professional academic. And again, it was not the plan. I never had intended to leave Minneapolis. I never intended to come to the University of British Columbia, but they were so compelling both in how they articulated their vision for Indigenous engagement and Indigenous community work and bringing that into the academic project. And also, at that time, they had just launched their first Aboriginal strategic plan, which was placing Indigenous initiatives and and community engagement as a top priority of UBC, which to me was stunning. I couldn't believe that this would have ever happened in my lifetime, and I couldn't believe it was true. But I came up here and interviewed and spoke to people and found out it was actually a true commitment and there was a lot of energy here. So I came to UBC with the idea that we'll give it a go and see. And if it doesn't work, then I'll just go back to Minneapolis, which was the plan all along anyway. Well, that was 11 years ago. So I think it's working. (laughs) Along the way, I began to really not just explore, but grab this opportunity space that is rare. So I think these two places, Minnesota and UBC, are two of the most, at least in the last decade and a half, open places to trying new pedagogies and and supporting instructors in doing that. So my teaching here has been split between First Nations Indigenous Studies and political science. But I don't teach them any differently. <laughs> I teach both the same so that I can bring them bring them together. So when I'm when I'm teaching in First Nations Indigenous Studies, and my teaching there has mostly been with the research practicum, which is what I was recruited to teach. So that's where we place students in their fourth year or fifth year, depending, their final year, 
we match them with an indigenous community-based organization and they produce a research project over the course of the year in collaboration with that organization. And so it's something like an internship, but it's much more than that because it it involves developing a proposal with the organization, negotiating that proposal, conducting the research, delivering it back to the organization in ways that are meaningful and important to that organization, and then also producing an academic paper from it, which is presented on campus. So it's, again, merging the grassroots world with academia. And then when I teach in political science, the primary course I teach over there is called Global Indigenous Politics. And we look at indigenous issues and advocacy on the global level. And the most important activity there is I have students do an actual simulation of the UN Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues with each student taking on the role of either an NGO, an indigenous NGO from somewhere in the world, or a state government. And then we spend the last several weeks enacting the permanent forum and articulating issues, uh, agitating sometimes because they have to get their attention and they, and they want to push structures of the UN. And in that enactment, they learn to feel what advocacy work looks like and how it feels. They sense the constraints, they experience the frustrations, the joys, and it is amazing to watch because it isn't just book learning or or lecture learning, they actually learn by doing. So I think that's been that's been the piece that has informed my teaching most of all is and I haven't seen or or really been influenced by particular authors that talk about this. It's just been the enactment. It's watching people do it, be brave, push the edges, and get students actually doing things rather than reading about or watching things. Well, in line with getting students to do things and thinking about hands-on and experiential learning, how are you approaching teaching in these new circumstances of distance learning? Well, it's something I'm grappling with right now because I haven't been in the classroom during this disruption. I've been working on my administrative position this year, but I will be back in the classroom next year. And so I've been giving quite a bit of thought to how I might approach this because I'm on the teaching schedule for January. So we don't have any particular directions yet about January, but I'm still figuring there's a better than even chance we'll be at least partially distant, I think, in January. I'm just assuming it, so I'm starting to put myself in the mind space of sorting that out. But along the way, I've still had graduate students that have been at various stages of their work. And so we haven't been able to have our face-to-face meetings and our coffees in the same way that we normally do because my methodology for graduate mentorship is by coffee. (laughs) It involves, I prefer to meet in a casual setting and not in my office. I like coffee shops. I think it just, it sets a more human tone. I get to know them better as people. They get to know me better as people. And it's a, it's a very relational approach. So I prefer that style of graduate mentorship, which of course is impossible by Zoom. However, I've been able to keep up by phone and by Zoom with some of the students. It's a bit more formal than I prefer, but 
there are times where we say, oh, let's make it a coffee. And everyone actually does grab a coffee and tea and, and we sit by Zoom and, and have a chat and talk about the most recent chapter. And I've been able to maintain that one of my students is actually living with her parents in Iceland. And so we have set up, <laughs> we've set up uh, every other week coffee morning by Zoom. And we have to arrange time zones. So for me, it's eight o'clock in the morning, but for her, it's mid-afternoon. And so we grab a coffee and we sit on Zoom and we talk about her work because she's just at the point in her work where she needs that every other week guidance to work it through. So we've made it as human as possible. And that's the beauty of Zoom is that you can still meet in person, even when you're very far away six or seven time zones away. (laughs) And so we've been able to maintain that connection. And again, you can talk about how, you can check in with students too and just say, how are you doing? How is your family? Is everyone well? Are there any challenges? And once you've established that human to human connection, they're normally very open with you. And then you can solve problems and move tasks along. And I I just find it to be a very effective way to mentor and to to work with students. For the classroom, I'm really struggling because my classes have always been relationship heavy. (laughs) So for undergrads, I make it a point and I ask them all, even, even when I have 70 in the room, make table tents with your names so that I can learn your names right away. And always by the midterm, I'm able to navigate the class and dress everyone by name without the tents. So the tents are are gone by by midterm because I don't need them anymore. (laughs) So I, I make sure that when someone speaks that I address them by name, I get to know them. And I also ask for some bio information ahead of time so that I I'd like to know what's your interest in the class? What other experiences have you had? Have you had international work? Have you had indigenous community experience? So that I know something about the students that are in the class, not just what's your major or, you know, where do you come from? But I I ask on the very first day in the undergrads, we go around and introduce ourselves. And I ask them to, of course, give me their name, their year, their major and minor. And then I say, and this is stunning for them, but it's very effective. Tell us where it is you call home. And without consulting your phone or your laptop, whose people, whose territory is that? Or whose territory are you closest to? And then I make them all put their phones and laptops away. And then it's quite an extraordinary exercise because some will will know right away and then others have no idea. And then we talk for a minute about why that difference? (laughs) What is it about your life experience so far, your education that has made that invisible. And let's explore that now in this course. And it's quite a powerful moment for students. And then I task them with, well, for those of you who didn't know, I'd like to hear from you next time because I'd like you to go do the research and find out. And then we'll do this again. And then everyone can acknowledge the territory of where you call home or where you consider yourself to be from. And that's quite a place to open up. That kind of exercise we could still do distance-wise if we can all meet at the same time. And this is what worries me is the time zone issue because 
with international students, and we have a lot of international students at UBC, I am concerned about how much we can be together and build relationship, but I'm going to try. And even if that means adapting something to uh, an online web format that people can post on, I still think it's important to try to build relationships. Because I've also noticed in my classes the students get to know one another because I have them connect with each other. So there's just a lot more interaction in my classes than students are used to at a big place like UBC. So it isn't just me to them, but also them to one another. And we do this with a lot of small group work so that they get to know different students in the class. And then, of course, when they're doing their UN project, they're going to be very familiar with everyone in their own caucus. (laughs) So like the Latin American caucus will know each other very well because they'll be working together. The North American caucus will get to know one another very well because they'll be navigating the system together and taking certain leadership roles. I don't see how I'll be able to do that exercise in a distance way. So I'll have to make some serious adaptations and give some deep thought to how we can still get to know one another and work collectively across the distance learning. The course I am going to be teaching for sure next year is a smaller seminar. So I'm anticipating only 15 to 20 students. So I will have to give some thought to how that's going to work as well. And I'm again, hoping the time zones can be friendly enough of the students that we can meet in real time on Zoom and have conversation because Most of my seminar work is discussion, and somehow we have to work through things together and learn from one another. So I don't have all the answers right now, Justin. I wish I did, but I can tell you that I will be spending the next six months thinking through these things very deeply and trying to get creative and also take a look at what other people are doing. So I'm starting to read everything from blog posts to Facebook to how are people approaching this and what's working and what isn't working. So I'm hoping to learn from their experiences and that way I can try to imitate what we do in real life in an online format to the best of our abilities. How can this moment of disruption that we're currently in provide a larger shift in perspective or a point of larger reflection for our pedagogy and our our role at the university? Yeah, it's a strange point of disruption because on the one hand, so much global indigenous organizing has already been virtual. We have used Twitter and Facebook for a decade now as a key communication and organizing vehicle, which then provides support on a rotating basis to individual hotspots that come up. So just in recent months, we've had a hotspot in Wet'suwet'en Nation in BC, where there's global organizing around that. Last year, of course, the hotspot was Mauna Kea in Hawaii and global organizing around that. So on the one hand, going virtual didn't change anything. (laughs) We already were well equipped to do that. And actually, it, it surprises a lot of conventional thinkers that Indigenous peoples are so well organized globally in a virtual space. It confounds their imagination. They just, they think we are so local or insular or inward looking as communities that we couldn't possibly be well connected overseas. And so when we have Standing Rock, it stuns 
conservative minds because they just don't think outside of the box that we could actually have ways of communicating with one another nationally, regionally, and globally. So on the one hand, that's not changing. On the other hand, what is changing is, of course, we can't move. <laughs> so, And a huge amount of global indigenous organizing is also face-to-face. It's people going to different locations, meeting one another face-to-face. The UN has always served as, I think, primarily a communications and solidarity building tool amongst indigenous peoples. That's in its most powerful manifestation. It isn't so much what the UN can do for indigenous peoples, but it's providing a space where we can communicate, meet, organize, build relationships. And at the moment, that is all cut off. And so I'm feeling personally, and I know a lot of the people that I work with, are feeling that loss very intensely. Because without that annual or twice a year chance to come together as a global indigenous community and be face-to-face and build relationship and maintain relationship, we're worried. (laughs) Because that's the virtual space in and of itself is not sufficient. It works because the relationships are already there from in-person engagements. So we're hoping in a year or two that we can be in a place where we can resume those face-to-face interactions. Because in my own work, there's nothing like being able to go and be with people face-to-face and discuss issues face-to-face. And it doesn't have to be just in New York or Geneva. We go to Chile, we go to New Zealand, we go to Australia when things are happening. And also for coordinated research, face-to-face is just absolutely essential. So how we're doing that... In one way, it's forcing us to be more local, but we were never missing the local boat. <laughs> it's just, we're in a strange headspace right now, Justin, and there's a, a huge adaptation that we're just all trying to work through and figure out how long we're going to be in this disrupted state and how that's going to shift our advocacy work and our academic work and how those two pieces can continue to, to develop relationship with one another. They're just more questions right now than answers. (laughs) Yeah, you can say that again. You spoke about a relational approach to teaching. I'm curious, how explicit are you with your students about your pedagogical theories and objectives? I think on the first day of class, I lay out the expectation that this is not your ordinary political science class. This is not going to be a class where you sit in the seat and I lecture and you take notes and then I examine you later on what you've absorbed in a short period of time. This is an active learning classroom and I put it in the syllabus and we start doing it the very first day. That way, students who are not interested in in doing that are free to go (laughs) because it's not for everyone, and I understand that. And I also beg them that if they find that the class isn't for them, please drop earlier rather than later because there are plenty of students that, that want to get in. And no offense taken. I understand this is not everyone's cup of tea, but it is... If you give me a chance and and you go with it, I think you'll find it's a very rich experience. So I'm just very honest with them up front. And the other piece that I'm very honest about is that I can't over-enroll. That There's no ability to go over 70. That's a firm line and it's non-negotiable. And the reason is not 
because I'm selfish, but because of the UN simulation, it simply won't work if we get up over 70 because it's too many people. It becomes not something that's fair to everyone and you can't participate in the way it needs to happen if we get over 70. So under 50 is too small and over 70 is too big. It needs to be in that 50 to 70 in order to work the way that it it's been designed to work. So I get some pushback on that because some students feel like, but it's my last year. This is my last chance to take it. Can't you just add one more? And no, I hold a firm line on that one. And sometimes that leads to disappointment, but it does lead to a better experience for everyone else in the classroom. And and I think that's fair. So yeah, I just lay it all out there right away. And it's in my syllabus about what the expectations are. And I said, this this will be one of those classes where your professor actually will encourage you to use Facebook because Facebook is one of the ways that we post news, we look for intersections. And then when we get to the UN forum, I encourage them to set up their own little Facebook groups that are private so they can communicate with one another. (laughs) And that doesn't mean I want you using Facebook while I am lecturing or while we're doing an exercise, but there will be a component of Facebook and Twitter in the class. And then I also, and you probably know this, I do a, a daily news feed of global indigenous news on Twitter and on my public Facebook. So I encourage the students to look at that every day because that's in real time, real life, what's happening all around the world on indigenous rights and indigenous advocacy. So yeah, it, it, it's a different setup and I just shrug and say, this is what it is. If you want to come here and experience this, you are welcome. If you don't, no hard feelings. Best of luck to you. (laughs) And uh, this is where we ended the interview. What are your thoughts, Ashley? Yeah, I thought this was an excellent interview. It really resonated with me when Cheryl was talking about her experience as a graduate student, because I think it's a really common experience of graduate students in the current sort of setup of U.S. Academy and its kind of implication on settler colonial politics. And I especially love how she talks about grounding her, not just her research, but also her perspectives in teaching in her experiences and her subject position as an Indigenous person. I think sometimes talking about our pedagogy and our perspective from this like personal and experiential point of view is not always emphasized when we're talking about pedagogy and how we relate to our students. Yeah, I agree. I noticed, I really liked when she talked about how she almost had two different worlds and that it interrogating those two different worlds didn't really come into play until much later in her academic career. And I think that's one of the things that I would imagine her students get, which she invites them to try to bring their experiential learnings, their histories, their past into the classroom. And I would say for myself, I mean, it wasn't until maybe like my second or third year in graduate school where I had that realization that I didn't have to just be what traditionally universities expect for you, but you could actually bring your whole self. So I definitely appreciate that as well. Yeah, totally. I think, you know, as someone who I really think of myself as a scholar activist, Mm -hmm. and I think, you know, I experienced a lot of cognitive dissonance in graduate school, especially in a theory program that was really sort of training us to 
really think about academia as our whole world and the like encapsulation of our whole future. And, you know, it was really difficult to navigate these totally different sides to my life, like the theory side and the activist Mm -hmm. side. Yeah. So I think there are lots of ways that the kind of inside and outside feeling inside academia can be really helpfully illuminating of a different way to be in academia, but can also be really challenging and hard. Yeah, it was very refreshing because if anyone knows Cheryl, she's extremely highly regarded in the field and her work is extremely sharp and celebrated all throughout the discipline of IR. And then she shares with us this intimate moment where she didn't even expect to be in a position where she's at an R1 or a research university. Or she didn't even think that she would be able to teach at anything more than just like a few, you know, a few college classes at the like the local college, and yet there she is, this global indigenous chair. So to me, it was it was really refreshing to see sort of this this humble approach, and it doesn't surprise me then when she said, you know, it wasn't one text that shaped her way of thinking about pedagogy, but it was through humans. And the biggest thing there that I caught was, one, I love that idea that she talks about mentorship by coffee, right? So it's like, let's have a coffee and let's actually see each other as human beings. But also, it really struck me that she talked about her supervisor and the way that she spoke about him, where it wasn't really even like a pedagogical approach that he took, but rather it was just being open to knowing that there's other ways of doing things, even though he had no idea what that was, but at least being open to it. So that really struck me. And it makes sense that if you don't see yourself in the academy and you don't see yourself part of that project, then all it could take actually is just one person being open to that idea. Yeah, I think also something that really struck me about that conversation about her supervisor was that like, I think... Sometimes when we talk about experience-based knowledge, we talk a lot about how the particular experiences that you have shape, you know, your perspectives and your politics and your, the way you sort of move through the world. But we don't often talk about the ways or the limitations of experience, right? Mm. That like, there are certain experiences that I will never have. There, you know, there's a set of experiences that are in a certain sense opaque And that those also provide opportunities for humility, open inquiry, collaborative discussion. And Mm -hmm. like, like I think some of the ways that the contemporary discussion about, about identity has sort of unfolded is to sort of assume that, you know, it's only people who share a set of experiences who can cultivate and be helpful mentors and like bridge worlds and I was really intrigued by Cheryl's conversation about how the recognition of limitation and sort of ignorance and the lack of experience in certain kinds of ways can also be used in order to be a really effective mentor and teacher. Yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, no doubt we'd want to see more representation of different For groups, sure. right, in the academy. But I do like how she mentions that that's, even if we don't have that, which clearly we don't at this moment, there's still ways, as you mentioned, Ashley, to kind of like notice your limitation, but then be okay with it. My experience is that oftentimes when I've seen scholars 
or let's say even administrators recognize their limitations, one of the possible reactions is actually kind of being overly protective of what you do know. Defensiveness. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, and you know, I mean, it's not surprising that her advisor or supervisor, when she mentioned that person, that she said that he was a senior person, which, mm-hmm. you know, you can kind of go either way. Sometimes if you're senior, it's like, well, you have nothing to lose. You don't mm-hmm. have to feel threatened. But we've also seen conversely that being defensive is not just limited to just people coming out of graduate school. Definitely true. Uh, But I also like how I think, you know, she really pulls on the productive possibilities of, you know, limitations also in her pedagogy. Hmm. And so I was really struck when, you know, she talks about one of the things she does with her students on the first day is ask, where are you from? Like, where do you make your home? And on whose land do you make your home? And the way that she talked about it was not shaming students who have never encountered this question or thought about it, but to say, great, if you don't know yet, please go home and research this and then bring it back so that we can talk about this and have a more comprehensive conversation about what it means to live in a settler colonial society. And I think there's something really interesting about how we often assume when we're teaching that ignorance can be this like opening possibility toward learning, but that we don't often think about that in relationship to ourselves as faculty members. And I really think it's an important critical principle to think about the work that we're doing in the classroom as co-creating knowledge with our students rather than bringing the knowledge that then we dump into their brains or something, you know, what like Friere and other people call the banking model of education where we just like deposit, you know, like deposit nuggets of intellectual capital, right? And hope that they, by the end of the semester, give us some kind of return on them. And I think one of the continuities that many of our interviewees, you know, many of our guests on the podcast this season have been talking about is a way of cultivating a co-creation, a participatory experience for students in which it's just as possible that they teach us something than that we teach them something. Yeah. And especially who she is, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, like she is so well known and she publishes this incredible works. And then to have that type of sort of, you know, interpersonal orientation, even with students, Uh, I think it really tells you a bit about how she approaches knowledge, how she approaches relationships. Even she pointed to it, sort of the the relational aspects of of knowledge creation. She said something to the effect of that we are learning together, that we we learn in relationship with students. And for someone of her stature to say that, I think that's really remarkable. Yeah, I totally agree. My last observation would be that it feels like these last handful of months has really opened up an opportunity because, you know, we've been able to talk to a handful of folks and, you know, Cheryl really knows what she's doing in the classroom. And yet here we are during a COVID time where even the best pedagogues that we know are still uncertain as to how to really connect and develop relationships through remote learning I think as daunting as it may be, it also allows us to have a bit of an opportunity to try new things. Even the way that we're approaching our classrooms in normal times is different from what we are taught, if we are taught at all, in graduate programs. 
let alone trying to do it distance, let alone trying to meet, you would say maybe students desire to be in community because we've been mediated through Zoom for so long. So if anything, for me, it says, okay, those ideas that I may have had previously that sound silly or that maybe sound kind of like, you know, very non-traditional, well, we have to try to new things. We have to, we're all being pushed to new things. And who knows, we might be able to push away from those traditional approaches to the classroom and just innovate because of necessity. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think so many of us are trying out new things in the classroom that we have never done before. And it was really helpful to hear Cheryl be optimistic about that rather than only overcome by, you know, fear, anxiety, or frustration about the limitations of the present situation. But I also really appreciated the recognition that those of us who do participatory relationship-based teaching are facing a sort of added pressure or like an added interruption of our normal everyday pedagogy in ways that perhaps people who are engaging in different kinds of pedagogical approaches might not be experiencing to the extent or in the same way. Yeah. I was just going to say a super refreshing and surprising to hear that She learns the names of her 70 students every semester. (laughs) 70 students by midterm, she already doesn't need the tense. 70 students. (laughs) Yeah, it just goes to show you how much she really emphasizes relationships. Great. Well, thank you all for listening this week, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us. Pedagogies for Peace, Intersectional and Decolonial Teaching was made possible by the support of the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies at the University of Notre Dame. The music is by David Hazardous, and the podcast is produced and distributed by Hannah Heinzaker. You can find all the episodes of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.